Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, and today we have an extra special episode of Toxicologist vs. the Internet with a fantastic guest, Dr. Emily Kiernan, an emergency medicine physician and medical toxicologist with Emory University. She is a really gifted educator and clinician, and we have a wonderful time on this show talking about a variety of subjects. We talk about some topical news stories regarding poisoning, cover the fear of poisoned candies in Toxtober, challenge each other with some cases of fatal and non-fatal poisonings, and dive into some questions from the internet. I'm also quite sure, thanks to Dr. Kiernan, that this is the highest ratio of toxicology puns per episode that we've ever had. It's a great episode, and we were so lucky to have Dr. Kiernan on the show. Now, for my high-yield friends listening on 2x speed to hear the cases, jump in at about minute 19. For everyone else, kick back and enjoy some great discussion. But before we can jump into the show, our standard disclaimers apply. We're going to be answering questions on the internet from people who may be trying to use drugs for the wrong reasons. Anyone using illicit drugs is exposing themselves to risks of potential contaminants, wide dose fluctuations, and toxicities of the drug itself. While this gives us a medium to explore toxicologic concepts, we are not advocating for anyone to use illicit drugs. If you are struggling with substance use, call 1-800-662-4357 to access the SAMHSA free helpline and get the care you deserve. Second, we're going to be talking about real fatalities, and while this allows us to discuss a lot of great learning points, some of these were intentional fatalities. If you or a loved one are struggling with thoughts of suicide, someone's there to listen. 1-800-273-8255 is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Please call. Finally, even though we're going to be discussing medical management, treatment, and diagnosis, this podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and we are not providing medical advice. If you think you're being poisoned or you have a general healthcare question, call your primary care provider or reach out to your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. You are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And with me today, I have an amazing special guest, Dr. Emily Kiernan. She is a medical toxicologist and emergency physician, as well as assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. She did her fellowship training in medical toxicology at Emory and residency training in emergency medicine at Lehigh Valley Health Center. And beyond all of that, she is a really incredibly bright person who has seems to have her fingers in every part of toxicology, uh, is really active in some of the major toxicology organizations. And what's really important uh, is she's super smart and super hilarious. So I'm very excited that she's on the show today. So uh, welcome, Dr. Kieran. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining. I know how busy your schedule is. This is an episode of Talks vs. the Internet where we do a couple of things different. This isn't one of our deep dives like we normally do. We have a guest on and we're going to do a few fun segments where <laughs> we play Stump the Talks. Uh, we're going to read each other case reports of fatalities uh, or just weird poisonings that are out there in the literature and get to listen to the other person form a differential and see if they can land on the right answer. 
Uh, of course, we're viewing it through the lens of, yeah, this is probably a toxin. Although maybe one day we'll just throw in like Ooh. a fun, like organic, you know, regular disease, red herring to throw everyone off. But yeah, it, the goal is that, you know, people can learn about what people who manage poisoning think of when they hear these different presentations. And then we'll do another one, another fun segment, which is called Toxicologist versus the Internet, where we answer questions from reddit.com slash r slash ask drugs and do our very best to analyze the burning questions of the Internet uh, regarding drugs and toxicology from the view of our combined experience. So, yeah. But before we jump into that, I was just reflecting on how we actually got to connect for the very first time, which is Dr. Kiernan and I got to go to the Society of Toxicology in March of 2022 in San Diego and present some clinical case. Well, I didn't really present. I read off slides and moderated and got to listen to how bright you and your fellow were uh, in actually answering the, the clinical cases. Don't cut yourself short there. You uh, you were moderating, but you also helped us along so that we didn't have too many dull moments in our presentation. I, I just swatted off the, the bad questions. That's all. <laughs> I, I kept the autographs that day, but that was so much fun getting to go hang out with some other toxicology professionals beyond beyond people who are in the medicine field. And we happen to have a fantastic time at that conference. I got to explore some of the San Diego fermented beverage scene. And this actually led to what is maybe my favorite thing that's ever occurred in toxicology, which happened this year at NACCT, which would be the first annual Cobalt meeting or the Consortium of Beer Allies and Learned Toxicologists, <laughs> which I give full credit to Dr. Kiernan for coming up with. It works in two ways because we love beer, but they used to add cobalt to beer as a foam stabilizer. So it's totally a tox beer drinker. The cobalt yeah. cardiomyopathy. So yeah. I spent like six, easily six hours trying to come up with a an acronym for this. <laughs> This beer exchange that we did at NACCT, the best I could come up with was the hand-picked, locally curated transfer of xenobiotic ethanol at NACCT or HPLC toxin. And it's a little wordy. And then I literally sent out the email and Dr. Kiernan fired back within about six seconds, cobalt. And I was like, wow, that's exactly what we need to do. And then I made some stickers <laughs> and I really took off from there. Uh, so in honor of cobalt, I actually have some of my favorite Wisconsin beers here today. A Red Rider, which is a red rye ale from Explorium Brew Pub in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Are you enjoying anything today, Dr. Kieran? I have a jazz bubble from oh. a brewery in Atlanta called Inner Voice, which um, is one of my new favorite up and coming breweries here. Wow. Yeah. Anything named Jazz Bubble. I know. I was I was immediately sold on the name, but their beer is also very good. I'm there. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. And thank you for joining the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I do think one of the, the highlights of NACCT this year was during the <laughs> clinical pathology competition. Um, I got to watch you rifle through differentials uh, with pretty impressive speed, all while wearing a gigantic mushroom hat to really, because <laughs> everybody knows that when you're doing talks, you got to be thinking fungi. Well, you are a pretty fun guy. So 
it works out you see <laughs> uh i appreciate it. it was it was fantastic to watch you and to learn from i really think everybody thought you did a fantastic job i, I did not get the right diagnosis i wow. thought diethylene glycol but it was in fact ethylene glycol when you're yeah. doing cpc you're always thinking it's going to be something like you know that's not yeah. normal that you don't test for so it was a little bit of a curveball everybody during cpc they all just turn and everybody whispers what they think it is i had multiple people also think it was diethylene glycol well i think you did a fantastic job everybody learned a lot and not only were you doing cpc you were presenting multiple times it sounds like you were working a ton so i i really appreciate you taking the time out to be with us today. I'm like kind of nervous. I'm not going to lie. This is as low stress toxicology as it gets. I think. <laughs> like if this is a total bust, you can just scrap it and like. It will not be a bust. Uh, well, this is a great time to be doing this podcast. Number one, it's Toxtober. It's like spooky season. This is when all the poisons come out. So this is great. Because <laughs> they're definitely uh, not around any other time of year. No, 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 no. Just all poisonings. Always in October. Yes. There's also some topical poisoning news stories out there right now. Did you have you heard about healthcare poisoning? There was a nurse in the UK who was just convicted of this is really tragic, but killing seven neonates and attempting to murder 17. Did you hear about this at all? I think I did. She, so what's wild to me. I started reading a little bit about it. She was giving them insulin, but orally. She was adding it to their tube feeds. And this, and then she was doing some other things like putting air in their IV lines, which can lead to air emboli and all that stuff. But what yeah. was, I, I kind of was perplexed by the fact that it was oral insulin that was implicated in a lot of this because generally large proteins get digested. Yeah. The bioavailability of oral insulin is very poor, which is. We have to give people shots. Yeah. There is an inhaler that never really caught on. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's like not super absorbable. So I wonder if there's something with the neonate where they maybe just don't have the same digestive enzymes or, so, or the same barrier in their intestine. So is that the cause of death? Hypoglycemia? Because it seems like it was sort of a multimodal approach. Well, right. Yeah. I think a lot of the kids actually did suffer problems from the air embolism she was injecting. But one of the articles said two of the kids actually got hypoglycemic. So it, whether that was unrelated or not, I don't know. I mean, clearly we need to know a lot more here. These are all just news stories. Yeah. But it is interesting. And then now, I guess hot topic, but there's an anesthesia uh, physician who... I can't remember where, somewhere south, I believe. Watch it. Nothing wrong with the south. Right. <laughs> but um, it's at a somewhat well-known place, but he was giving like two milligram boluses of fentanyl to people in the ICU and they were dying. And now he's being like charged with murder of all these critically ill patients. And they're claiming they that he fentanyl poisoned him. I mean, that's a massive dose of fentanyl. I will... Did he also put it on their skin and just like rub it all over? <laughs> he used a micro micro abrasion, uh, you know, exfoliator. Yeah. I actually thought about when I was reading, um, I was going through all the fatality reports and I was like, maybe I should just throw a curveball and I'll bring up this really cool case report of this pharmacist who 
got some fentanyl on his hand <laughs> and died. <laughs> but he lived. He yeah. That would, uh, I don't know if I would have gotten that one, to be honest. Have you also seen, um, there was the, in Gambia, um, the, all the diethylene glycol <gasps> in the young kid and like all the kids. It was, Related to Tylenol, right? Yeah. Um, it was some sort of, I thought it was like a, some sort of like treating for like viral type symptoms or whatnot, but yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, all delayed onset, all in kidney failure, all these like, young kiddos. And I think it, like, a lot of the products were from companies based in like India and, you know, all tested positive for diethylene glycol and, and ethylene glycol or some combination of both. Yeah. And it's just like, why does this keep happening? It, that's one of the first, I mean, DEG is a contaminant. We've run into this. Multiple times. Multiple times, and it's still it's still out. Hey, Ryan here. Sorry to interrupt, but for those who don't know, diethylene glycol, or DEG, was one of the first mass poisonings in the United States. In 1937, elixir of sulfanilamide, an antibiotic, was made with diethylene glycol, and over a hundred kids ended up dying from ingesting this antibiotic. In fact, the backlash from this event is the reason we have the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938 that required manufacturers to prove safety of their product. So we've dealt with DEG for a long time, and to see it rear its head again is, I don't know, history repeating itself? Okay, back to the show. Now, are we okay, are we okay to talk about DEG and EG right now? I know that they've scorned you. I know. Actually, right when it came out, I was like, why would it just leave me alone? <laughs> it's haunting me. It's literally haunting me. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that is wild that that came back. So there's all sorts of talks is, is rearing its head right now. Because it's October. Because it's Toxtopia. <laughs> all right. Well, we are having too much fun. We probably need to jump into the show. Thank you for entertaining my uh, tangents there. Uh, but before we jump in, one last question. For anyone else who is as inspired as I am by your work in toxicology, can you give us a little background on how you got here in case someone else is sort of interested in this path themselves? Um, well, I mean, you've met me. I'm kind of a nerd at heart. So <laughs> tox ultimately felt like a pretty good fit. Did, wait, um, hold on. Did you own that mushroom hat before becoming a toxicologist? I actually didn't. Um, <laughs> one of my friends got it for me. Um Actually, it was during toxicology fellowship because of my true nerdiness. But I definitely had mushroom earrings and a lot of Star Wars paraphernalia. I'm pretty sure I have a Star Wars onesie. Um, not gonna lie. <laughs> so you know, take that for what it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess from a medical standpoint, um, I remember like just being in medical school and thinking, you know, we learn a lot of like we kind of professionally deal drugs as physicians. So like, maybe we should be really honing in on some of this pharmacology a little bit more. And I remember always being really interested in the pharmacology in med school and kind of going way too deep into it because you have a lot of information you need to learn, obviously. Um, and then I would have to like scramble to go learn like all of this, like histology and like what certain cells look like under a microscope because I was too busy reading about like drug mechanisms. Um, but it's kind of a crazy time because you learn all of this 
pharmacology and mechanism of action, but you have like no clinical information to back it up. So it's still very almost basic science for you. Okay. So you love pharmacology. Yeah. But then I, I honestly didn't know that toxicology was a pathway until residency. I never, like, it was never really brought up in medical school. Um, and then where I did residency at Lehigh Valley, I just had these four incredible toxicologists that I got to work with. And I just remember thinking like, who are these people? Why are they so much smarter? And like, how do I become this one day? I think like, you know, everyone has that one case that, you know, kind of solidifies your decision to do it. And I just remember like the first anticholinergic delirium that I had that we gave FISA to and completely reverse it. And like, I just remember going and being like, this patient has altered mental status. And the toxicologist was like, give this drug. And I push it. And I'm like, <laughs> this is magic. <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> so um, I've always, like ever since then, like they, the, the toxicologists I work with were just always the coolest people and they were so smart. So it was hard not to just be <laughs> intoxicated by them. <laughs> I like but I also really like how I feel like toxicologists have this really important part in the healthcare system when it comes to public health. And so I remember doing some work, we didn't have a poison center, but we did take consults for different hospitals during the state. So just kind of public education. And we dealt, we, we did a lot with addiction medicine and kind of the opioid epidemic. And I just, it felt like toxicology, like these like toxicologists just had this really important job to do. And they seem to be involved in all these different things. And we're like really making a difference um, to kind of their hospital, their trainees, and just their community in general. So it was, it was kind of, kind of a slam dunk. Yeah. At that point, hard to figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, the, the public health is is really a cool, I mean, yeah, just all the different facets and ways that toxicology kind of fits. Tox is sort of everything. It's everywhere, and especially in Toxtober. It's in Toxtober, it's Toxtober when we're recording this. So that's really cool. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, so for any of those interested out there in public health and teaching and talks, they all seem to go together. So wonderful. Well, without further ado, should we jump into our first segment of the show? This is going to be Stump the Toxicologist. Uh, this is where we're going to read a few cases of poisoning that may have led to fatality. These are real published cases or other cases sourced from the American uh, America's Poison Center's annual report. <laughs> or recent branding change. Yeah, the name change there. Yeah. Well yeah. Um, and, you know, we certainly don't want to make light of any of the morbidity that occurred. And some of these happened because people were intentionally trying to harm themselves. And this is really some of these are unfortunate. Um, but we do want people to be able to learn uh, what some of these really tragic poisonings can look like so that they can better manage them. So <clears throat> that is why we're going to go through these today. Um, I got a couple of cases selected. Um and I do you want me to go first? I always dealer's choice for you. I can read one for you or if you want to. I feel like I'm going to get stumped today. Let me tell you, I just already feel like that's going to happen. And I'm OK with it. I'm pre OK. With it. I'll let you go first, even though I pretend like I don't know how this works, but I'm a total super fan. So. <laughs> All right. Well, OK, so hold on. Me go first as I I'm reading or you're reading. Uh, um. You, you you read first. Okay. 
Man, I really have some good ones too. I can't <laughs> wait. I'm so excited. All right. I don't know. I okay. How how about this one? This one might just be fun. Something was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. You wouldn't maybe have read it this week. I would not have. All right. So I think we're safe. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. A 34-year-old woman presented the General Medicine Clinic with a three-year history of changes in skin color. Her examination was notable for innumerable hypopigmented macules on a background of hyperpigmentation, creating a raindrop-like appearance on the chest. I'm actually going to show you a picture. <laughs> for listeners, I'm going to put this, this picture in the show notes as well. So here we go. So it's sort of hard to see okay. hyperpigmentation and a raindrop-like um, appearance on the chest and the hands. I will say it might matter where this person lives. Okay. Right? All right. And then palms and soles had similar changes in pigmentation, and she had hyperkeratotic papules. On additional history taking, the patient reported that neighbors who drank water from the same well she had had similar skin changes. Laboratory testing revealed elevated levels of something. <laughs> and the patient happened to be presenting to a clinic in West Bengal, India. Uh, actually, she lived in Bangladesh, which I don't know. <laughs> Close enough. Okay. So. Her and her neighbors are having these chronic hyperpigmentation, hyperkeratinosis, raindrop patterns. You kind of had me at raindrop pattern. Would you like to wager any guesses? I'm going to guess chronic arsenic poisoning. That would be correct, Dr. Kiernan. Five points to... Are you a Gryffindor? Five points. Okay. We'll go Gryffindor. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> chronic arsenic poisoning. In Bangladesh, where the river is made of Have arsenic. you seen this before? No, I've never seen the skin change. I have read about it many times. This is like I remember when I was studying for boards. I read the ATSDR, the um, what the chat. It's like a ninety-page chapter on arsenic, and I just remember reading about this hyperpigmentation, hyperkeratinosis, increased risk for skin cancer. Um, I've never seen it in person. Have you run into this at all? We actually have a very active outpatient tox clinic. And we have seen some arsenic poisoning. And then randomly, when I was in fellowship, I was out in Montana when I was working for the CDC during the vaping. Um, Evoli? Yeah, the Evoli uh, vaping outbreak. And they have a really big problem with chronic arsenic because there's a lot of well water out there. There's a lot of super fun sites. And so, um, wow. yeah, I've actually seen some of these skin changes in person. Wow. Uh, and they do look very similar to that, but that can be really tough. Cause I mean, people and skin, like skin for me, like as an ER doctor, I rashes are like my least favorite thing to look at. <laughs> like who knows what they are, right? Uh, whole other language of descriptive words for talking about rashes. And to me, they look red and bumpy. <laughs> so I, I think you made it put a lot of people at ease saying that because I feel <laughs> like a lot of people feel the same way about that. Yeah, they can get some really nasty chronic changes or kind of 
bad or a bad disease from these chronic arsenic exposures, um, like you said, including cancer. But then a lot of these weird skin changes on the palms and soles and these hypopigmented raindrop yeah. patterns. I suppose. So- this patient had a arsenic level checked. It was elevated, and she had. Um, it looks like, all, uh, after abating the well, interestingly, her skin changes apparently resolved somewhat. Yeah, at three months, her skin changes had abated, and then she remains under surveillance for skin cancer, given the elevated risk from there. Uh, we, you know, we've definitely seen arsenic exposure. Uh, I've never seen you know skin changes from it in person. The most common reason we run into arsenic is because someone inappropriately ordered a urine arsenic w- without screening uh, to find out if it was organic arsenic versus inorganic. Because um, as some of the listeners may know, uh, there is you know organic arsenic compounds that are found in. Um, you know, seafood and people who have recently eaten seafood will have a positive organic arsenic urine, but it's not necessarily toxic. It's not what we're worried about. So if your lab doesn't speciate inorganic versus organic, or if you're like a shady chelation clinic and you want to tell someone they have arsenic poisoning, (laughs) you know, you could screen their urine and it might test positive, but it's not clinically that relevant to us. That's a lot of, you know, we get involved a lot with that interpretation, helping people make sense of where these levels are positive. That's so fascinating that Montana is a is a larger afflicted uh, area. I did not know that. Um, and how what a cool experience that you've gotten to see some of that. There are some medications that have arsenic, right? What's the one for like the African sleeping sickness or? Um, oh, there there's artisanate. Is that what it's called? I, yeah, I can't remember the name of it. Hey, Ryan here. Quick factual correction. As podcast, Ryan was clearly under the neurologic toxicities of arsenic while answering that question. Artisanate is not an arsenical-based compound. The actual African sleeping sickness drug that has arsenic in it is called melarsoprol. This has been your arsenic learning moment. Well, well, first off, there's straight-up arsenic as a medication. We use it for, um, if you have acute yeah yeah it's arsenic i think it's arsenic trioxide it's the trivalent state um it's inorganic and it's nasty and it causes we use it in um, a specific type of chemotherapy for a specific oncologic emergency acute promyelocytic leukemia which is like a really severe leukemia that shows up in young kids but it's like 95 percent survival if they survive that, which is great. Um, and we usually give them isoretinin. They get atro, which is like isoret vitamin A and arsenic and all this stuff. It's so I've actually I've actually ordered it before, which is weird. I've or verified like but we worry about QT prolongation with that a lot too. It seems to cause a yeah, rhythm. Yeah, more so in the acute, I believe. I don't think it's as much of an issue in chronic, yes. but Correct. can definitely prolong your QTC. Yeah. And then all the other nasty. All the inorganic metals are just hemorrhagic gastritis. And, and or like the arsine gas. Oh, yeah. Like Hemolysis. Like, and don't really want that. Yeah. <laughs> it is a little horrifying. <laughs> Anytime metal is a gas, you should be concerned. <laughs> <laughs> a red flag. Arsine gas, stibbing gas. 
you've got vaporized mercury, you've got an issue. Yeah. All that yeah, stuff. Just don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> anyway, well, spot on. That was just too easy. Uh, I thought it was, uh, you crushed it. I thought it was a good kind of reminder of the buzzword of the skin changes of um, arsenic. And I thought it was cool. It's Toxtober. So it was just, you know, obviously published in New England Journal of Medicine this month <clears throat> for spooky season. So that's great. Um, but yeah, excellent job. I don't have too much more to add for arsenic. <laughs> I think you covered it well. So uh, would you like to throw one at me and I'll see if I can, can keep from messing it up? I think you're going to do great. I'm worried more that I'm going to say a word that I'm not supposed to and give it away, but I'm going to try really hard not to give this away as I'm reading the case. Okay. And this also might be very vague, but that's, it, okay. that's how it was written in the fatality report. So first clue, it's a fatality. Okay. Um, ethylene glycol. <laughs> so I also thought about tell, like, giving you a diethylene glycol. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> All right. No. Thank okay. You. Um, so this is an 85 year old male who drank a concentrated solution. Anytime someone says that, I think peroxide, but let's keep going. That was the only scenario listed. Okay. Um, he has a history of Alzheimer's, dementia, COPD, and depression. Um, let's see here. He, when he got to the hospital, he was having multiple episodes of emesis and coughing, uh, but they noted no oral burns or adonophagia. Um, and then he was ultimately transferred to a tertiary care hospital for an endoscopy, but had a cardiac arrest on arrival. He had emesis and coughing, which mm -hmm. makes me concerned that he aspirated. And they did want to scope him, which makes me concerned that it was a caustic. Did he live at home? Do we know? Probably. Uh, it doesn't say. Is his emesis bloody? Can I ask? You can ask, but. But it doesn't say. <laughs> it doesn't say. All right. Well, when I think of people drinking concentrated solutions and rapidly dying, any just real quick though, any other um, information about the death? Was he like hypoxic prior to that? Was he bradycardic, or he just PA and death? So the vitals that they give me are he has a BP of, or a blood pressure of 154 over 63, a heart rate of 86, respiratory rate of 20, sat, oxygen saturation was 99% on room air, and he was afebrile. And then I got labs that were also not very helpful because they only gave me a chloride of 110, a, <laughs> a bicarb of 20, a glucose of 152, an anion gap of 18, and a lactate of 2.9. Hmm. Yeah, not super helpful. <laughs> I can tell you more about the cardiac arrest. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Read it. Sure. <laughs> that might help. Um, so they started CPR when he went into cardiac arrest. Um, he initially was in torsades and was treated uh, with mag and defibrillation, and they got ROSC. And then a few minutes later, he went into torsades again, and then recurrent ventricular fibrillation, and then received a whole bunch of m other medications. And that went into PEA and then developed torsades again and then ventricular fibrillation again. And then he died. Yeah. Okay. So I can just walk through what I'm picking out of this. Okay. The patient showed up. They drank a concentrated solution. 
It was a clean. It, they they say cleaning solution. A cleaning solution. I mean, I kind when I think concentrated cleaning solution, a few the, the things that pop up into my mind are bleach and peroxide. Uh, the at first peroxide will usually see gastric irritation and frequently emesis, especially concentrated, uh, because one teaspoon of you know, 70% hydrogen peroxide can create massive amounts of oxygen gas. And that leads to gastric distension, causing vomiting. It's also a caustic. So you get, you know, you get oral, uh, oral irritation, which they didn't see. So that kind of pushes me away from that. But he did have emesis. Um, and then the problem that we see with, per, uh, with hydrogen peroxide is as it generates oxygen, you get portal, uh, you get air embolism. Uh, and that can lead to problems. Doesn't sound like that happened here. Bleach, I would see emesis. He could hypoxic, uh, you know, he could aspirate on the emesis and then become hypoxic and arrest from that. But narrowing in on torsades yeah. makes me think there's some form of potassium channel blocker or something that's delaying repolarization. The chloride was high. Diquat dibromide. Bromide can sometimes get measured as chloride however it's not a cleaner that would be gap is normal which sometimes when your bromide is that high you get that negative yeah you would have a negative although then you'd have to have a pretty high chloride but yeah absolutely um but i just when i think of concentrated solutions that's another one that kind of jumps to my mind other cleaners Typically, you have anionic cationic detergents, which are soaps generally. Those are more or less going to cause just irritation and injury. There have been deaths in older people drinking soap, uh, like large quantities of it, and usually aspirating, and that's what causes the death. Ammonium, ammonia bifluoride is not a cleaner, but that also, when I hear torsades for some reason, was it a fish tank cleaner? Are you sure? You might have mentioned it. Think of outside of like the kitchen cleaner. Like what if you were in your garage using this product to clean something like a wheel? <laughs> is it a wheel cleaner? <laughs> it might be. All right. Well, this is just going to reveal to the world how un- automotively handy I am because I don't know what a wheel cleaner is. But... What if it was a really rusty wheel? I can't think of what the actual... <laughs> you said I already said it. It's ammonium by fluoride. It is ammonium by fluoride. Yeah. <laughs> use it as like a tire wheel cleaner. Or um, they use like hydrofluoric acid a lot in like rust remover. So a lot of people use it on their tires and on like their... Um, what are they called? The, the thing that goes in the center. Hubcap? Hubcap? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Look at um, me. I'm like automotive a- now. <laughs> Hubcaps. <laughs> that's uh, okay so uh, i did not know that you used ammonium bifluoride to clean rusty tires so i have really rusty oven things and i bought this anti this rust off agent i don't actually know what's in it this is something i should go look up but that is <laughs> i did fantastic. think that was kind of a tricky one because when they say cleaning i initially i always think like kitchen or household cleaning and i don't always think like Right. Well, it's my fault. I was housed in my bias. I wasn't holding my my ideas loosely enough. I, <laughs> I was too too set in my ways of what a cleaner was. But that's a great one. Ammonium bifluoride is really yeah nasty, 
and um, ventricular arrhythmias are quite common. That's yeah, not- they're and they're they're treated a lot or very similar, to, like that you would think of a hydrofluoric acid uh, exposure. So, like your hydrofluoric acid can penetrate really deep into tissue and dissociate into kind of the hydrogen ion and your fluoride ion. If you think about like your periodic table, it's really highly electronegative. And so they have a very negative charge or they like, they really want to bind positive things. So a lot of times it can bind to your extracellular and intracellular stores of calcium and magnesium and deplete them, which ultimately leads to this kind of torsades picture where you have a prolonged QTC because you have hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia. Uh, the interesting thing, and I always, like, I, I still can't wrap my head around this or at least the literature that I've found on it is that they are, these people can also be hyperkalemic. Yes. And so I think that the overall mechanism isn't fully understand, which is like the awesome talks way of saying like, <laughs> we don't know what we're talking about <laughs> or like, we don't know what's causing this. But the the interesting thing about it, like the fight between whether hydrofluoric acid and by um, or ammonium bifluoride, whether they cause hypomag and hypocalcemia from the fluoride toxicity or the fluoride ion versus whether or not you're having some sort of like intracellular shift of calcium or potassium out of the cell. Because that really, if you have someone in torsades, that kind of changes how you might treat them. Like at the end of the day, you kind of throw the kitchen sink at someone like this, but like, are you really going more like hyperkalemic treatment or are you focusing more on repleting kind of their electrolytes and going down that route? Um, Right. I feel like I have to look, but dialysis, can't you dialyze fluoride pretty readily? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Case report 2018. Oh, this is written by Farkas, who I work with. (laughs) Treatment of ventricular fibrillation due to ammonium bifluoride poisoning with hemodialysis. This is why it's dinging in my head. There you go. So you knew it. Yeah, because it's a small, you know, highly water-soluble molecule. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Okay, that's why I was thinking about it. It's because I've read this case from Farkas, who was the guest uh, toxicologist the internet episode, I think seven or eight. Yeah. The actual treatment, I think you, you shoot for everything, right? You're going to give mag. You're going to do aggressive ACLS supportive cares. You're going to replete electrolytes. Large amounts of calcium are usually needed. Yeah. We had a poster at NAC when I was a fellow where we looked at NPDS, HF, and related product exposures for like a 10-year period. And, you know, the majority of them, because we usually think about these as being universally fatal and being this really bad, especially when it comes to ingestion. But we actually found that a lot of them because if you're, you know, the products that you get over the counter are generally low concentration and are usually, you know, in a non-suicide attempt are, you know, you have a low concentration, small, either dermal or small ingestion amount. And most of the people end up doing well. And a lot of them did get calcium or magnesium replacement, but ultimately ended up, you know, being able to be discharged from the hospital. It's really these really highly concentrated products that, um, seem to be causing most problems in people. Um, and we do unfortunately see that because um, the couple cases that I've been involved with are people who will bring a 
like a concentrated product home from somewhere that they work and, you know, they put it in a Gatorade bottle and then they end up putting the Gatorade bottle on the fridge and then accidentally take yeah. a lot of it and then, you know, have this massive, cause you know, they're, they're bringing home like 90% HF or, you know, aluminum by fluoride product. And then you're kind of in trouble. And then the, this- the burden of reused Gatorade bottles on society is, <laughs> is much larger than people think. Ethylene glycol is always in a Gatorade bottle. <laughs> uh, ammonium by four. Yeah, that's crazy. That's right. I haven't run out of show-stopping sound effects yet. One more little interruption. After the show, Dr. Kiernan sent me a fantastic paper written by none other than the Georgia Poison Center and the Emory Toxicology Group about the types of toxins people ingest from secondary containers, a.k.a. empty Gatorade bottles. So if you really want to know the true morbidity of used Gatorade bottles, check out the show notes and you'll find the study there. Let's get back to the show. Great case. Great reminder of where you might encounter this substance. Excited to find out what's in your rust remover for your um in your <laughs> I don't know. It's like forward to finding out. It is a uh what is the term when they won't actually share what's in there? It's proprietary, I believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was stumped. I'll give myself point one points for saying the word. I you thought it. Word. That's a win. And it was kind of confusing. But it was a lot of information. Hey, actually, I'm just happy I thought it. Okay. Here's another one for you. Oh, boy. All right. We're going to do this one because it's a little easy. Not easy, but it's it's more common. Okay. Okay. A 22-month-old female was found altered by a caretaker and brought to the emergency department. She has no past medical history. Her physical exam has a heart rate of 166, her vitals, blood pressure 93 over 73, heart rate 29, or sorry, respiratory rate 29, (laughs) pulse ox 95%, temp 36. Uh, The patient was found altered in the home, was given naloxone, no response, had a CT done in the hospital that showed severe anoxic injury and herniation. Patient was hypotensive when they arrived, received vasopressors uh, and also anticonvulsants to prevent potential seizures. Uh, but after multiple days, the patient was actually declared brain dead. Hmm. And the treatment team suspected anoxia as the primary cause of her initial insult. So basically, we have a 22-month-old that has suffered an anoxic brain injury at home. Well, that's not great. No. But unfortunately, this does happen where, you know, kids, especially that age, are crawling around and will put just about anything in their mouth. So if there is a pill on the ground to be found... Let's think. So I know you mentioned that they gave naloxone. Do you know how much they gave? I don't. I'm going to say two milligrams. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, honestly, with a respiratory rate of 29, I'm not really thinking opioids anyways. Um, did they give you a blood glucose? Uh, I don't have a blood glucose, unfortunately. That's okay. a great question. I'm going to say it was normal. Okay. Because other things, you know, we we get a lot of kind of when we think of these one pill can kill type scenarios and, 
young kids, um, a lot of the oral hypoglycemics, especially sulfonylureas, um, could easily lead to a kid being altered, like have altered mental status and having that sort of reflexive or kind of um, sympathomimetic response from being hypoglycemic to make her fairly tachycardic. Um, Other things, I think, again, like, I think of like the long acting like methadone and buprenorphine, but again, her respiratory rate doesn't make sense with that. So I'm kind of out on those. Um, Was there ever an initial EKG or... EKG, well, I'll give you a on. Sorry, I did a pretty piecemeal job of reading this one. I didn't have it well written out. So here's your labs. Creatinine 0.15, normal for a good AST 125, ALT 29. Tox testing was positive in the urine drug screen for a variety of substances. Uh, Tylenol and aspirin and ethanol were all undetectable. And EKG normal intervals, but you might suspect a prolonged QT if that were normal intervals. But I may suspect it if there was if this was the ingestion. <laughs> so other things I think of kind of when I go down my you know like pediatric exposures, one pill can kill. I know we all love that uh, saying, but like hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Um, but again, I'm not really normal EKG. Yeah. She's tachycardic, but I'm not, nothing is necessarily pointing me in that direction just yet. Um, but in that same vein, like cardiotoxic, um, exposure. So calcium channel blocker, beta blocker, digoxin, again, doesn't really fit with her heart rate being so high. Um, also think of clonidine, sort of your alpha adrenergic, and this is a common thing that kids are on and can get exposed to and take extra. And so they can, again, a lot of times, especially in higher overdose, they do get some CNS depression, but they can also have respiratory depression that can respond to naloxone. Um, sometimes it takes really high doses. So even if it was two milligrams, that may not have even been high enough, but so like not entirely fitting like clinical picture, maybe initially with the hypertension. I think those are all fantastic. And I'll let you know, you've already said the substance. And mm-hmm. based off the information I've given you, you would logically not come to the conclusion of the substance. <laughs> <laughs> because on reflection, the toxidrome that the patient is exhibiting in the hospital is not consistent with what this causes. Cool. You would likely see meiosis, bradypnea. <laughs> <laughs> You actually said it much earlier. <laughs> methadone? Yeah, it's opioids. That's, <laughs> that's This one actually was specifically methadone. So the kids, you're a drug screen, tested positive for benzodiazepines. I'm not sure where those came from, if they got them in the ED, but also fentanyl and norfentanyl. Mm-hmm. And then the ma in the home, there was known to be both heroin and methadone. So actually, this might not have been methadone. This was probably heroin, which was, of course because it's the United States, actually fentanyl. Uh, It is just a really sad case of an unfortunate uh, pediatric fentanyl exposure that led to death. They're not exhibiting the things you would expect from an opioid overdose, which would be, so it's basically, this was unfair. It was a trick, but, but what I think it's hard to pick it all out of the case. What we were seeing when the patient showed up 
was the signs of anoxic brain injury being present, yeah. which, so they had already suffered a bradypneic respiratory arrest that led to anoxic brain injury. And then by the time they showed up to the hospital, you know, the respiratory center was kicking again, probably had a bad hypoxia. Uh, and that can lead you to elevate your cardiac output because you're trying to deliver oxygen. So they're tachycardic. They are now satting okay. This is all because they have bad hypoxic brain injury. Um, and this just goes to show, I think, that sometimes once the brain becomes injured in a tox case, it's really tough. That's where a lot of our autonomic signals that dictate our toxidermes come from. Uh, so once we mess that up, a lot of things can go out the window. Um, the real reason I brought this one up is because when I read through fatalities this year, I think I read like six maybe cases of pediatric fentanyl overdose. It was really sad. and and. I think it's super pertinent to Toxtober because right now there's a lot of messaging in the media about drugs and candy and kids getting into fentanyl from candy bowls during Halloween. But if you look at who's actually getting exposed to pediatric fentanyl exposures, it's kids living in homes where opioids are available because of, of caretaker use. Um, you know, they're not getting it from candy bowls. It's usually in the home already. So I think if we really want to be keep our kids safe, we got to think about what's in the home. And if we have, if there are opioids in the home, do we have naloxone in the home with us to treat a potential overdose, stuff like that? I thought it was kind of pertinent. Yeah. Anything to bring it back to Toxtober. <laughs> it's really tough. I mean, you, you kind of get the same thing when you have these poly ingestions, right? Like it kind of throws all of your normal toxidromes and clinical presentations out the window much like when they come in when they've already arrested or been down for a long time yeah it's a little bit tough it's a lot harder to get the unifying diagnosis it's a little a little less satisfying but. also why it's important to ask families about what they have in the home and you know try and approach it in a very non-judgmental way to make sure like to you know let them know that you're trying to help them or their loved one and that it's important that they tell you they're actually what they've been up to. There was an, an abstract published this year in NACCT that looked at all the pediatric overdose deaths and a whopping amount. 30% of them were opioids, I believe. I know, I know, right? It's tough. I'm almost surprised it's not more, to be honest. But And then a huge amount, something like 70% of them occurred while under the supervision of a caretaker. So that really kind of blew my mind. If you have those substances in the house, the likelihood of an exposure is going to increase substantially. So people really need to be ready to manage those, I think. And some easy preventative steps, such as having naloxone in the house. And of course, keeping your medications up and away, away from kids and in a lockbox. Just people should recognize the real risk here is probably in the home and not out on the streets during Halloween. Not in a candy bag. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that was sort of a trick, but you did hit it right away, actually. You said methadone, so I'm going to give you full credit. Uh, and that was suspected. Um, all right. You got another one for me? Are you ready? Oh, yeah. I'm ready. Okay. I started out way too hard getting ready to um, to do this. And this one also is kind of tricky, but... <laughs> I hope this is demoic acid. <laughs> Listen, I'm always okay with being tricked. This is the place to get tricked here, as opposed to out in the real world. I mean, in my defense, you told me to look through all of the fatalities and 
honestly, like four hours goes by because like you find something, you go down a rabbit hole. It's a couple hours later. And, you know, <laughs> if you don't know that you want to be a toxicologist and you find yourself doing that, I think you already are. And you just don't. Really <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. So um, this was also from the fatality reports. So this is a 78 year old male who called 911 for symptomatic hypoglycemia. And he went into cardiac arrest after EMS mistakenly administered something instead of D10. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Would you like anything else? Or do you want to? I want to know what they mistakenly did. All right. How about the vitals? <laughs> um, oh, gosh. Where the vitals? Is this? Uh, see, I also should have read this. Um, so, oh, 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 that was silly. He was in cardiac arrest, so there were no vitals. Um, oh, and he arrived. He uh, was in ACE silly on arrival in the ER. Okay. Received some things and then they got Rosk. All right. Well, he was hypoglycemic at home. Does he have past medical history? Is he on like insulin? Is he? Um, they don't actually mention anything about his past medical history. Okay. And they were going to give him D10, huh? Mm -hmm. So like a 250 bag or probably 100 cc's or 250 of D10. Likely thing. EMS, the ways they administer drugs vary between each county and who the medical direction is coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, you can probably see, you know, some people mix up their vasopressors in a 250 bag, some do it in a liter bag. So, you know, something that's going to kill somebody via a bolus would be four milligrams of epinephrine given in a 250 ml bag uh, to a living human would probably kill them um, or norepi. Um, but they also have some other fancy drugs that could cause problems. You know, lidocaine maybe seems somewhat unlikely. What's most likely to spark an arrhythmia or malignant hypertension, I would say, is a vasopressor. I guess I got to learn a little bit more about what happened. Is there any more information in the ED? So I have an ABG with a pH of 7.01, and that was the only value. (laughs) Um, Sodium was 138, potassium 4.4, chloride 98, bicarb was 23, BUN of 22, creatinine of 1.8. Would you like his EKG as well? Yeah, that's that's what I want. (laughs) His heart rate's 94, and his QRS is 186. Okay. Well, this is pushing me more towards lidocaine or amiodarone. Maybe they have procainamide on there. Because uh, what's going to kill somebody would be something, you know, immediately would be arrhythmia. Proarrhythmic drugs include sodium channel blockers. What an EMS rig has is usually amiodarone, lidocaine. Lidocaine is a class 1B, which traditionally speaking, narrows your QRS. However, in overdose, it can certainly cause QRS prolongation. Uh, The 1B antiarrhythmics disassociate the fastest from the sodium channel. They actually shorten the action potential duration. That's why they think it narrows the QRS. But I think you can see a widening in overdose. Now, if you give 250 cc bolus of lidocaine, I don't know how you met. Usually they get it as a syringe, so I don't know how they did this, but... I could see that maybe happening. I guess I'm, and he didn't seize though. There was no report of seizure. And I just don't think they'd give enough amiodarone to kill someone. So you you kind of nailed it on the head. So he got IV two uh, percent IV lidocaine of an unknown dose. 
Um, oh, God. Asystole. Oh, no. That's about uh, <laughs> Very oh. unfortunate. Um, but so he received, so he showed up in the ER and asystole received sodium bicarbonate and 100 milliliters of 20% intralipid, which would have given it away as well, yeah. followed by the 0.5 um, ml per kilogram over one hour. And he got ROSC and mm-hmm. but had a wide complex tachycardia. He also got three grams of calcium, was intubated, and then became hypertensive, followed by hypotension and tachycardia, and then kind of circled the drain and and then died 12 hours later. Wow. Well, that is really unfortunate, both for that patient and probably that EMS system. Uh, you know, that's sad. That's a, These people are trying to do good and... That's a really, it's a tragedy when a patient error causes severe harm or death. That's a bummer. But I wonder, did they get a lidocaine level? No, nah, there wasn't Providence. one reported. No, no, unfortunately not. Usually above six is when we start to see toxicity. And that would be, I don't know, yeah, an unknown dose. If you got 250 cc's of 2%, that would be a lot. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't care how much you weigh. That would be a lot. Yeah, that's a good chunk. Well, that's a great case and a good reminder of why we have our many parts of the Swiss cheese model and drug administration to prevent things like that from happening. You made a good point, though. Um, so typically with the local anesthetic, systemic toxicity or last, um, you do see kind of seizure and central nervous system symptoms first. So sometimes, you know, if with lidocaine, for one, you know, people might complain of like, some numbness, like circumoral numbness, or maybe some blurred vision or dizziness, and then can lead to kind of seizure and coma. Um, And then as your levels get higher, like you mentioned, over four to six, then we can start to see some of this cardiovascular collapse, um, which is very unfortunate. But they did try to do the right thing. And I guess because of the history, they kind of knew what they were dealing with. And they gave intralipid, which is, I think, is that really like the only true indication for intralipid? I mean, I feel like you maybe be pivocane more than Lida, but yeah, they're they're on the right move. They're on the right track. <laughs> uh, yeah, they they tried. I think it was certainly reasonable. Uh, I guess you'd have to ask what the log P of lidocaine is. I think it's pretty lipophilic. Actually, I guess that's sort of debunked too. There was just a randomized trial that came out that looked at healthy volunteers and they gave them metoprolol and then they gave them intralipid. And they measured the metoprolol concentrations as well as heart rate and blood pressure uh, after intralipid. And they found that intralipid did not change metoprolol concentrations, but did increase heart rate and blood pressure. So the lipid sink theory, at least for those cardiovascular drugs, may not hold water. So there's a hole in the lipid sink. There is a hole in the lipid sink, which a lot of people have said for a while that, you know, do we really know that that's the mechanism? No, but. I think, and like what you're getting at is that it's more of that like cardioactive or that they act as a cardiotonic agent and increase cardiac output and also stroke volume and and everything else and then increase heart rate. So it's almost like our pressors, like we use kind of like hydrogen as like a weird mechanism, but ultimately increases your cardiac output. Yeah. Much to be learned about it as well, I guess. I, I feel like I've watched the 
the uh, pendulum of intralipid swing multiple times just in the last few years about whether it works or it doesn't or what we should use it for. That's and obviously I think it's very also toxin specific, but people talk about it broadly. But it's one of those things too where it's it's tough in tox because when you're giving intralipid, they're generally very sick. So when mm-hmm. you're throwing like kitchen sink. <laughs> lipid sink, kitchen sink, approach at somebody, um, you know, was it really the lipid that caused them to survive or not survive? And we just, we don't know. And then the other, the, you know, when we do try and test on people, it's in animals or in, you know, in vivo studies and, or in vitro. Yeah, or healthy people who aren't yeah, extremists. So it's hard to really extrapolate that then to our poison patients and whether or not it's actually doing anything. Yeah. Well, good case. Great reminder. To double check what you're giving, iatrogenic errors are really there's a, that's that's a bummer. Um, well, uh, I have so many more I want to do, but <laughs> I guess we should go on. <laughs> I I just I let, do you want to do one more? It's up to you. Okay. Do you have like 15 extra minutes? I'm good. Let's do it. Let's do I'm it. I'm having a great time. <laughs> All right. All right, a 45-year-old male with a history of hypertension presents to the emergency department with severe vomiting and diarrhea. He reports going on a fishing trip with two of his friends two days ago. He caught a number of large oysters. Last evening, he cooked the oysters and ate two dozen of them. He was asymptomatic until the morning of presentation in the emergency department when he developed GI symptoms, his vitals were tachycardia, borderline soft blood pressure, everything else normal. Physical exam was unremarkable. His labs revealed leukocytosis, a finger stick of 125 glucose, and then all other labs, electrolytes, creatinine, and BUN were all normal. In the emergency department, over the next several hours, the patient became increasingly confused and disoriented until he developed a tonic-clonic seizure. A lumbar puncture was performed, produced a negative gram stain and cell count, so they ruled out meningitis as a cause in theory. And he actually ended up having kind of persistent neurologic sequelae. He did stop seizing, but he was sent home after 86 days in the hospital with a severely incapacitated short-term memory. So he went on a fishing trip, caught a bunch of oysters, ate them all, showed up the next day, tachycardic, a little hypotensive, developed some neurotoxicity, progressed to a seizure, and then progressively poor neurologic function and uh, ended up discharged with short-term memory loss. Almost like he was amnestic. <laughs> almost. Shellfish. <laughs> it's almost like these shellfish had amnestic effects. Interesting. Look so, at that. Be? Mm, mm, I think I think he hit it right on the head. I think I, I think I'm gonna go with some demoic acid, which I think you already brought up once. Today. I did. There was some foreshadowing there. I know. I was just excited about this one, and I just think it's a oh. it's such an interesting toxin, and I, I I wanted to talk about it. So, what gave it away for you? Well, you mentioned oysters right. and shellfish, so that would have been a really interesting 
history twist if it had nothing to do with that. (laughs) 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 But you never know. Uh, So I started to go down my sort of marine neurotoxin um, differential. And then when you mentioned that he ended up having a seizure, also one, the vomiting and diarrhea and then seizure. And then you really just nailed it home with the amnesia. Uh, Amnesia is certainly a a key word here. So domoic acid, this is uh, one of our shellfish toxins. There's a few of them that we're generally aware of. You have there's paralytic, which is, that's uh, saxitoc. Yeah. It's the diuretic, which is, I think, the okadoic acid. Oh. That one. Then <laughs> you have domoic, which is amnestic. And then there's brevitoxin, which brevitoxin. is a neurotoxin. This is why the shellfish poisonings drive me nuts. Is because not only do they have the specific toxin, but then they have their own special term for it. That's so yeah. stupid. Okay. Anyways, we're going to talk about... This one, which is the amnestic shellfish poisoning. And this is naturally produced algal toxin, domoic acid. And it's an excitatory neurotransmitter, essentially, that acts as glutamate and hits the neurons so hard in the amygdala and hippocampus that it overstimulates them and they die. Uh, It happens when there's harmful phytoplankton or algal blooms uh, that produce domoic acid and gets taken up by the shellfish. And then somebody catches all those shellfish or mussels, eats them, absorbs the domoic acid, and away they go. So this is why I wanted to talk about this. This was first identified in 1987 when 143 Canadians became ill after harvesting and consuming domoic acid contaminated blue mussels. Since then, we have implemented monitoring that has pretty much prevented human exposure because, you know, we can monitor for these algal blooms and we notice when there's domoic acid in high amounts and, and, and we can avoid eating those fish. But we still see the effects of domoic acid in sea lions. So the first case of amnestic sea lion shellfish poisoning was in 1998. And that exact same year, over 400 sea lions along California's central coast died or developed neurologic symptoms due to uh, an algal bloom of demoic acid. And now literally every year, there are still sea lion deaths attributed to amnestic shellfish poisoning. So the poor sea lions of California are being afflicted. Do you think there's like a little... Like amnesia ward for these poor sea lions. <laughs> I don't know. I just I just imagine a, a poor lost sea lion kind of wandering around aimlessly, no. forget eating shellfish nonstop. Mindy shellfish of them, not to shell <laughs> Solid puns today. This is I think highest puns per episode are coming to. I have to a me. problem. I have That's, a problem. <laughs> that is not a problem. I've accepted. It's okay um well all right thanks for humoring me with that last one i wanted to just i had to get that one out there i had that one prepped for an old episode and i just had to talk about sea lions that's such a good one though yeah and that Um, differential of shellfish poisoning is always a good time it's it is always a good time my talks is so cool we went from like opioids to poor sea lions who were being poisoned yeah yeah um, okay, we have to do talks for the internet, and we're already <laughs> over time, so we can at least squeeze in one question each. I think. Do you want the drug testing or the bong water one? 
I don't know. What do you think will be better? <laughs> you told me you did a dive on bong water, so I got to you were diving into the bong water. See, so I, you're getting it. I love it. <laughs> right. uh, why don't we? All right. So here's my question for you. This is from reddit.com r slash drugs. The question is drink meth? Question mark. What would happen if you drink the bong water? <laughs> so, Dr. Kiernan, <laughs> someone unfortunately or intentionally drank the bong water from their meth pipe, which I didn't realize people used in a bong, but okay. What might happen? What do you think? <laughs> That's a great question. And I think it might have been intentional based on. My very interesting um, literature review. I'm not going to lie. I um, had to really read about how to bong something because I was never used to bong before because I'm like not cool at all. Um, so I had to start at square one. Um, and again, most times we think of people using like marijuana with a bong, but I guess people also can do it with meth. Um, but meth, it's highly soluble in water. So I can imagine that if they're kind of using this bong i guess does get into the water if you're not cleaning it for like months at a time because some people let these sit so that they can concentrate the like meth byproducts in there and then either ingest it or inject it iv um so yeah uh, the whole thing kind of made me feel a little queasy but yeah so it appears as though if you are doing this um you can get really concentrated i guess byproduct or just meth product in your water if it hasn't been exchanged for some amount of time and there are cases found one case report of somebody who ingested it and said that they were like worst high that they've ever had and they came into the emergency department very sympathomimetic so very hypertensive and tachycardic and hyperthermic and required active cooling and wow. ultimately had a good outcome and you know was able to be discharged with real sequelae but a lot of people, I guess, will also use the bong water and then inject it IV. Yeah. Uh, which again, I find very um, interesting. But I guess, so I guess to answer your question, I think that you can ingest it to get high um, and it can affect you. And again, if you're, if you're thinking about like really highly concentrated methamphetamine, you know, that could be a really big problem. And it seems like it would be a pretty dangerous thing because you don't know what really is in that water. Um and then you're going to ingest like an unknown amount of it and potentially get very, very sick and could have a, a really bad outcome. Yeah, probably not the best idea. <laughs> <laughs> this question did get me kind of going down a rabbit hole, like you, like of just the physical properties of meth. <laughs> I was kind of like, well, okay, there are some things to think about here. Like how water soluble is meth, which it turns out methamphetamine freebase mm -hmm. actually has a log P of two. So it's more lipophilic. It likes fat more than water, but it would go into some water. But what people are usually smoking is methamphetamine hydrochloride, the salt, super hydrophilic. So you're putting it through a solution. You're getting a bunch of meth in that solution. And then I guess I guess for any listeners who are not aware, a bong or a water bong or a water pipe, as some have said. I feel bad. I didn't know either. Yeah. You, you're basically, you have a pipe that sits in a thing of water. You light it. And then you inhale um, or you draw the smoke through the water and then into an air cavity above where you can inhale the smoke. So you're drawing all this meth smoke through the water and you're making the water hotter by doing that. So you're also dealing with super saturation of solutions. I think a little like have you ever made hot ice? So when I was at science class, we would take in vinegar 
and sodium bicarbonate, you mix them together, right? And you get a volcano. Yeah. Um, but if you take vinegar and sodium bicarbonate, you heat up the vinegar and you pour in a little bit of sodium bicarbonate at a time, you supersaturate the solution because it's warm. It can dissolve more of it. And then you can do this thing where you let it cool to room temperature and you touch it and the entire thing solidifies because all of a sudden all that dissolved sodium um, acetate in solution precipitates out because it's no longer the appropriate temperature to dissolve it. You're kind of running into the same thing when you're heating substances and passing it through water where you might be supersaturating the solution a little bit. So I think you can get a ton of meth in there. And <laughs> you're, you're kind of explaining how you kind of reconstitute these meth crystals back into. Yeah. <laughs> like You're going to take that bong water. You're going to maybe hopefully do some sterilization and desiccate it using whatever. I won't name any product names to... <laughs> Don't don't want the DEA like we're not giving instructions. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you can definitely take that water then, the super concentrated new solution, and then just recrystallize and have some new product. Yeah, yeah. Th- I think that what you're really running into the problem here is you don't know the dose. You know, obviously, so many different things come into play: your patient tolerance, the and then the dose that they'd actually be ingesting. But those are both widely variable. Seems like probably a bad. I didn't read any case reports that said this worked out great. (laughs) So I don't know. I found it interesting. The process to make methamphetamine. I mean, it was the basis of Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, It actually like it. The chemistry behind it isn't that complex, but a lot of it has to do with your kind of precursor materials. And so I was looking into the different methods, which again, like. My computer's as a toxicologist, your computer is condemned to being like followed by some <laughs> like your Google search history. It's just questionable no matter yeah. what you do. But um <laughs> it really depends on the the products that you're using, even to or you know, what was used to synthesize your meth. So then if you're again boiling it down into solution, you potentially have a lot of really bad byproducts and the one um, kind of way that people make meth um, is using this phenyl two pro, uh, propanone or the two or P2P. But a lot of times they have these, like the methods for making it will yield a lot of really bad byproducts. And sometimes they'll use things like aluminum or mercuric chloride or, you know, other things that you probably don't want to be ingesting or injecting or inhaling. And so again, if you don't know where your meth came from, and then you're using this bong hyper concentration method and then ingesting it again you just you have no idea what's even in there it is pretty wild wild you can't trust your drug dealers these days (laughs) or i I don't even know who who i should not be trusting in this scenario who's (laughs) who's drinking the bong water but uh anyways i think yeah seems like a simple question but there are some things to think about well should we jump on to another one we got we got a little more time before uh let's do it um Oh, I had one about using caffeine to wake someone up from an opioid overdose. Oh, that and is really interesting. What yeah. can I hear the question? What was their question? So um it was basically like, hey, my friend uses opioids. Can I either one like pre-treat myself to not or can my friend pre-treat themselves to not have respiratory like um respiratory arrest because caffeine causes respiratory stimulation Mm. and can you use caffeine if someone has overdosed that is really an interesting question sort of a futile one because we have such a good 
right? <laughs> reverse laden. So let's just cut to the chase right now. Don't try to do that. Just have naloxone in your home and don't use the loan. Let's start with that. Yes. Uh, Harm reduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you're not going to armchair pharmacologize yourself out of opioid-induced respiratory depression. Uh, it kind of begs the question of where does opioid-induced respiratory depression come from, which is uh, generally thought to be related to mu opioid receptor stimulation. But there's two different types of mu opioid receptor stimulation. One is um, a G-coupled protein. Uh, it's the mu opioid receptor is a G coupled protein, but when you stimulate it, you can get G coupled protein receptor. Um, you know, you solubilize your G coupled protein and blah blah blah, second messenger. But on the other side of it, you also get beta arrestin um, production. So you get two pathways that happen when you stimulate the opioid receptor, and it's thought that the beta arrestin is actually what's responsible for the uh, opioid respiratory depression or the reduction in sensitivity to carbon dioxide of the respiratory um you know pacemaker in the brain so i kind of bring that up because people have tried to develop drugs that actually preferentially stimulate the the um g coupled protein receptor they call these biased mu receptor agonists one that they tried to market was called oh goodness i'm going to forget the name it's one of the newer opioids that came out uh in in Beagle studies that look promising, but then in humans it never shook out. But this is a, a, I don't know if it's marketing or what, but people try to take this route a lot. So, what does caffeine do? I don't think it affects beta arrestin. Caffeine is a adenosine receptor antagonist, but it also has a million other effects. Uh, they use it in infants, yeah, as a respiratory stimulant. Yeah, like uh, premature, um, the neonatal apnea or apnea prematurity. Exactly. So what it does is as a downstream second messenger, it, it affects your sensitivity to CO2 of the of your respiratory center. So you're more sensitive. Okay, so opioids make you less sensitive. Caffeine makes you more sensitive. Mix them together and you're neutral sensitive. I guess that's the thought process behind it. Um, the other benefit from caffeine is a small amount of it, four to 6%, I would say, depending on what your SIP profile is, gets metabolized into theophylline, um, via SIP1A2. So you get a little bit of bronchodilation too. Um, not that that's really your issue from opioid. You're not, you're not wheezing from your opioids, although they can cause histamine release. Anyways. I guess I wouldn't be surprised if I found out that you took a bunch of caffeine and it made you more refractory to opioid-reduced respiratory depression. I don't think it's an effective antidote. I think we have effective antidotes, and that's naloxone. <laughs> uh, do you find anything about using it? There are like any preclinical or human studies about trying to use it? There are not. Okay, there... well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> there maybe with some animal data to suggest that it might assist. But again, one, you know, we have a very effective antidote. So I can't state that enough. But also, um, I don't know if the dose of caffeine that you would need, yeah. like, I, because one of the um, comments on this was like, oh, yeah, you just need like 10 grams of caffeine and you should <gasps> be. <good." laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> 
that's a lot that too <laughs> so maybe not ready for for real i mean <laughs> really interesting question though and i mean it does get at some like underlying mechanism but i i don't think that that would justify then using and assuming that you're going to be safe. Yeah. I wouldn't want people to be like, Oh, I just slammed my venti Starbucks. So now I can, <laughs> you know, double up on my fentanyl dust. Like that would be a bad move. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, and then at the end of the day, there's no free lunches in biology. Anything you put in your body will have an effect, but I don't think there's a reliable protocol for how that's going to uh, ameliorate opioid induced respiratory depression. Oh. In, in, very interesting, but it, kind of a good, question because caffeine does have some clinically relevant drug interactions in in medicine specifically one of the most fun drugs to give which is adenosine Mm -hmm. and caffeine is an an adenosine receptor antagonist at least in one of its mechanisms so we use adenosine to terminate svt supraventricular tachycardia and there's a great paper they looked at uh, people who were in supraventricular tachycardia related to caffeine and basically, adenosine, if you drink caffeine within four hours, a six milligrams of adenosine was not effective in terminating it. 12 milligrams was. So if you have a caffeine-induced SVT, you got to push that adenosine dose. Uh, so it, it is, you know, it affects everything. I mean, it's really a real drug that does stuff. I know we can buy it everywhere, and some people think less of it because of that. But it can certainly do some damage. In, Especially in those really high doses. I mean, yeah, 10 really, I mean... It can be a life-threatening toxicity. I mean, we've we've had to dialyze someone in the past year for taking the caffeine powder that you can buy on Amazon. Yeah. Again, like you only need, you know, they tell you like a quarter of a teaspoon or something and people are scooping it in for energy then end up with a really life-threatening kind of caffeine overdose. Yeah. Yep. Even so, like, I think I think a lot of the newer energy drinks are even putting um, theobromine in them now. Which also cool. <laughs> it's not <laughs> a great idea. And uh, sometimes they're adding in other agents that are supposed to be like calming to sort of mask your jitters that you get from the huge amount of caffeine. Again, these industries are very smart in what they're doing. You um, sell a product, but maybe not the best for, you know, putting it in your body all the time. <laughs> well, I think those are two great questions. I don't know if we're going to really solve any more mysteries today <laughs> those were those were good ones um do you have any was there anything else you wanted to chat about on the on the show any other topics you wanted to bring up i i think i don't know if we have any more time honestly though when i was looking through like looking at these reddit things um i have a like spin-off show for you um like I remember like the dear Delilah on the radio <laughs> these people would like call in with their problems oh, yeah. and as I'm reading all these questions I just imagine them being like dear Ryan <laughs> like, <laughs> I have this talk <laughs> so I think you know whenever you're whenever this whenever you run out of fatality reports to read or you've you know come full circle in this I think you should have your own I do think there needs to be like a public radio show like Ask a Toxicologist. I mean, honestly, listen, the poison centers are free anyways. And they do. We handle these questions all the time. It's just they're not broadcast on air. So it seems like a good retirement plan where you're like, I'm not going to work clinically anymore. But now I'm just going to, you know, go on the radio. And this will this will be our retirement plan. Give it give it a little more time. uh... I'm I'm 100 percent in. We'll (laughs) we'll. uh... Start a domoic acid oyster farm and and 
pop open a public access radio show about toxicology. We can do it from breweries so that we can continue our cobalt. Yes. This is it's all Absolutely. coming. Things are coming together. It'll it's be all coming together. I like. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That I, you know, I really, I wish that some of the people asking these questions are listening. I hope. I think they're getting their answers from other people on the internet, but whatever. Which is good and bad, but yeah. like your poison center plug, you can always yeah. call. Then they, you don't have to give, you don't even have to give your real name. Just call and ask your question and. Really awesome trained people who can try and help you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining the show. This was fantastic. I had a lot of fun. I loved I loved the puns. I loved every one of them. Dad joke aficionado. Any final thoughts, things you wanted to share with the audience? Any toxicology wisdoms? I, I think that's all I have, but I really appreciate you having me on. I had a lot of fun. So yeah, thanks. it was good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks for being on the show. (laughs) Hey, it's Ryan. That'll do it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you like what you're listening to, go ahead and give us a review. It helps us reach other people who want to learn about toxicology. I hope you learned something fun about ammonium bifluoride, arsenic, domoic acid, diethylene glycol, or any of the other things that we talked about today. Don't forget to follow the show on social media, on Twitter at Lab Poison, myself at EM Poison Farm D, Instagram at Tox underscore Talk, Facebook, The Poison Lab, and I think that's it. Oh wait, you can actually find all of our episodes, free medical games, free medical lectures from YouTube, all online at www.thepoisonlab.com. As always, keep your ears peeled. We'll be releasing episodes with teasers for the next case. If you think you know what caused the symptoms in the case, write your guess in to toxtalk1 at gmail.com. T-O-X-T-A-L-K-1 at gmail.com. Be sure to include why you think the poison is what it is so that other listeners can learn from your differential. All right, that'll wrap it up for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you can tune in next time. Until then, Toxo. Can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now. <laughs>